This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by To Get to the Other Side by Kelly Olert, which you can add on Goodreads. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I am here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, <laughs> known the world over as Chasing Artwork. And in studio today, remotely, we also have Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, who is the open secret on the podcast now, is my <laughs> agent at Westward Creative. What so, have you gotten yourself into? Yeah, my, my <laughs> condolences for our... <laughs> For our um, new um, newly uh, suffering, a newly suffering agent. That's right. Hardly oh. suffering, at least. So far, we haven't been on sub together too long yet, right? So it's we'll true. see. Yeah, well, the tears will be later. The tears will be later. Um, now, Emmy, I'm so glad to have you here because uh, Justin and I have been having conversations in the studio about lots of stuff that I know from your own Twitter feed, you're also sort of interested in talking about. Oh, good. <laughs> get to help people understand, not just the role of the agent with some are like, oh, how do I get one? How does it fit all that? We'll get there, I guess. But one of the things <laughs> I think would be fun for us all to talk about is a person walks into a bookstore. It starts, sounds like the beginning of a, of a joke. A person <laughs> walks into a bookstore. They pick a book off the shelf. Can you help illuminate our dear listeners all the hands that oh, touched that book <laughs> and all the supply chain pieces that went into that book is now theirs? I hope you're prepared for this to be like a series because that's one of the things that like, I feel like I spend my whole life thinking about this all the time because like I'm such a systems thinker and publishing is so weird and has so many moving parts that yeah, like it's kind of shocking. I think that, you know, like so often, especially in like these days with social media and the sort of perception of the author and the book as like this I don't know, like object for critique. I think so often, like the author really bears the whole burden for whatever goes on inside of those pages. But yeah, like if whether we're thinking like the physical book itself straight through to like the industry and how that functions. And then, yeah, the actual physical, like the, the physical work of the book, I guess, of actually writing and composing the words that end up on the page. It's a huge number of people. And I really think that a lot of people I don't even know if I really know like how many hands really go into making a book but so from like from the position that I'm in in the industry I guess like I work mostly with the content of the book and the contracts and the money that kind of surrounds the project so in terms of the people that I interact with every day um well obviously it starts with like it starts with my authors so they I would say that like every author that I work with has a different process and most of those processes are also not solitary, especially the ones that are effective. <laughs> um, I would say that like most authors like they might bang out a rough draft on their own, but even from like the point of view of um, like creating a story or developing a concept. I mean, a lot of them have have extensive training. So they have gone to a lot of workshops or they've done like a I don't know, some of them have done like a college program or university program. Um, but even in 
in terms of like the immediate day-to-day -day of the writing. A lot of them work with coaches, a lot of them work with writing groups, critique partners, um, even like beta readers, which is just like the fancy word for like the friend you send your work to. Um, you know, like I would say that a lot of people, a lot of books have been seen by dozens of people before I even lay eyes on them. Um, I actually super, I laughed a lot listening to the episode of the podcast where you talked about querying me and how <laughs> nerve wracking that was because I don't usually get to see that side of it. <laughs> so it was really fun. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, I think a lot of people, I like I tell people that I want things to be revised before I get them, even if they're clients who I've worked with for a long time. So, I mean, I'm by far like not the first person to lay eyes on most people's rough drafts and and I shouldn't really be like, that's not really my job. But um, so yeah, by the time I get it, it's usually any manuscript or like a rough draft of something has usually been seen already by like a dozen people. But from me, I work with my authors one-on-one -on -one to like edit and refine the projects. Um, it depends on the project that they're working on. If it's something that's like more conceptual or a nonfiction thing, then we're going to be doing like a proposal together. Um, if it's like a traditional novel, then we do a couple of rounds of revision of the entire text. So there's you usually- Do you bring sorry. in outside editors or are you doing the editing portion of that as well? Yeah, so I do the edit editing portion of that okay. at Westwood. Um, every agency kind of has like its own process. So before when I worked at the Rights Factory, they have a lot of um, outside editors that they work with. And I was super, super lucky there because I got to work with like such amazing editorial staff that would like that complemented my work. Um, at Westwood, we all work individually. So the, the trade-off is that we have like amazing support staff. So I actually have time to do that work myself. Whereas before um, at the Rights Factory, most of the agents are doing their own kind of like accounting and things like that. And so um, they have other responsibilities that take up their time and some of that editing gets shared. It's just sort of like a different balance of responsibilities, I guess. Um, May I also yeah. uh, interject to demystify for the dear listener, when we're talking about editing, I think when people start, oh, they believe editing means, oh, you'll fix my spelling or grammar or- Oh gosh, no, and, I and wish. What we're talking <laughs> about is the substantive structure of the story and how the, the heart of the thing you're making lands with the reader. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of editing. So the stuff that I do tends to be the more developmental pieces. So going through, I have like a template that I use for editing that has like different sections. And I mostly just fill it out every time that I'm working on a different project. So it has like a section for like voice. So like how the tone and like the authorial voice of the author is coming through, um, character development, structure, pacing. Um, there's a section for like plot and pitch, which is mostly for me to be able to like brainstorm how I'm going to try and sell the book later down the line. Um, but also to refine like if there are plot holes or if there are things that, you know, especially for like a bigger project, sometimes I think the whole story is in the author's head, but we have to make sure it makes it to the page too. Right. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, like market sensitivity kind of things. So like anything that might be like alienating to a reader or might turn somebody off we try and like make books as inclusive as they can be um loose ends which is like the last little fiddly section at the end is where i throw like all my grammar notes and like whether or not the ending kind of lands well like the, every book should be satisfying at the end so if i feel mad at the end that's where i tell people about it um yeah i think that's pretty much it but yeah it's more of like a broad strokes kind of process and then we leave like the copy editing and line editing is really 
more or less the responsibility of the author. Um, some of them work with professional like copy editors or line editors to really clean up the manuscript if they like don't have the time or resources to be able to do that on their own before we take it out on submission. And then that all will happen again once the book gets acquired by an editor or the publisher. So yeah, once it gets handed off for me, once it's been acquired by a publishing imprint, then there's like a whole other swarm of people that get involved. Um, the editor that acquires the book generally is the one who will be working most closely with the author. So they do like a whole other round of, usually by then it's not super substantive editing. It's more like making sure that line by line, the writing you know, is perfect and the plot is flowing the way it should. Sometimes there's some structural things. It sort of depends on the kind of book it is or the kind of project it is. Um, world building obviously is like a big one for anybody doing genre kind of work, like really making sure that everything is consistent throughout the book and makes sense and is translated well to the author. And then, um, and then marketing and publicity come in and they also have a hand in sort of shaping like different aspects of the narrative. Sometimes they definitely have a huge hand in like how the book is displayed and the cover, um, how it's pitched to the reading audience, so all the jacket copy, um, the blurbs, the advertising, um, even down to the little details of like which, you know, blog gets to host the cover reveal. Forget about it. This book is not for you. I'm just interested because uh, yeah. with the background of like graphic design and, and illustration, um, if, if it's my book, when it's getting to that stage and, and the publisher marketing team is, is making those decisions and choices, how much do I as the creator get to jump in and be part of that conversation and how much is just them deciding it for me yeah it varies so wildly between imprints sure. it's so intense like i've had i've definitely had some i should say overall my experiences have been really good i know that people come in with horror stories of like oh my god they made this cover and it was awful and i hated it and it was never what i wanted like that definitely does happen but um in my experiences it's been positive and i think part of the reason for that is that westwood has sort of a like standard um, contract clause that we always negotiate that the author gets at least approval over the cover um, and like the jacket copy on the book. And usually once, I feel like usually once the editor and the imprint have committed to that, then they're more open to a consultative process because they don't want to get to a point where they've done all the design and then you come back and say, no, you know what I mean? They'd rather have it be like a, a collaborative process like right from the beginning because it's much easier to backtrack from there than it is to come in and have to change the whole thing right off the bat um but i would say like overall if it, it depends in some to, to a certain extent how involved the author wants to be as well because obviously like you as an author with a like graphic background you're going to have like way more of an interest in the design of the book and the cover of the book than say somebody who like has no sort of like visual background at all and has only ever done prose. Um, but I would say that all authors typically have like a strong feeling at least once they see, if they didn't before they see the cover, they always do after they've seen the cover. Um, and I would say that most imprints that I've worked with have been pretty collaborative. So I think the toughest part is that there are so many people involved. So you end up like having, you know, the editor in my experience will come to the author and me and say like, okay, what are your kind of like ideas for the cover? This is sort of what we've been talking about, but they have on their side, like a whole team of people that they're working with from like marketing and publicity and also their art department. So like the editor's job in that case is really to network like between all of those different teams to make sure that, you know, you end up with something that the author feels like is accurate to what's going on in the book, but also, 
you know, marketing and publicity need to feel like it's eye-catching and need to feel like it is trendy and stands out amongst other books on the shelf. And then it really depends like what their budget is and what their capacity is at their art department too. So there's a lot going on there. And it sounds like a really fun art department to work in. Yeah. (laughs) All day that man, that'd be fun. Totally. And it's interesting because some art departments have, you know, like in-house designers that do all of their covers and some of them use freelancers for almost everything. So some, sometimes it'll be like an issue of like, okay, here, here are our cover designers and here's like what they think about this book. And then sometimes it's like, okay, we have this idea. So we need to go find someone who can do this for us now. And so they're like literally browsing Instagram to like find you know, artists being like, oh, this one looks kind of cool. Like, I wonder if they're available. Do they have an agent? Like, it really depends on the project and on the imprint. Um, and then, like, as an added layer of complexity on top of all of that, it it also depends what the printer is physically capable of. So what printer they've booked time with and, like, what their timeline is for revisions. Because once something goes to the printer, there's no real going back after that. Um, and these days, because there's such shortages in supplies of, like, certain kinds of paper also and certain kinds of ink, like, it, that also restricts what artists are capable of um, designing in terms of book covers. Because, you know, like, some colors are going to really pop on a certain kind of like glossy fancy paper but if you know there's none of that paper that exists to purchase then we can't put it on a book cover so there's a lot going on (laughs) what point does the book rep show up in that process at what point is um you know smaller presses that i've worked with they'll have a person who then goes and is in a room somewhere shopping that book to just oh yeah like the salespeople. so they usually come in i want to say like the tail end of that process. So they usually get to see like, because they're part of kind of the marketing side, they usually get to see like drafts of the covers and things like that. I don't actually know how much input they get because those conversations don't really happen like with the author present most of the time. They usually happen like- In my experience, they don't have input so much as they have a demand for show me everything. No, don't show yeah. me that. We don't want to show them that. Oh, exactly. you that. oh, if you're done, but you're not sure the ending. Exactly. Make it sound vaguely finished. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. So they usually come in like once the cover is like you get kind of a mock-up of the cover. And once that mock-up has sort of been greenlit, then I find that's when the sales department starts to get involved because they I think that they really shine when they know kind of they can start thinking like you know, they've read the summary of the book, they've seen the cover and they can start thinking like, oh, I know this bookseller who's going to go wild for this. Or like, oh, I know that this store is going to like, for example, if like they know that Indigo has, you know, a promotion coming up where they're going to do like a certain kind of uh, like sideline sale. So like, you know, a promotional blanket or like they're going to go for like a cozy, like autumn Haiga theme in their stores and they see a book cover that is like right in that theme, then it's a perfect opportunity for them to call up, you know, the people who are designing their front tables and say like, I have this perfect book that's going to look great with these products you're selling. Like you definitely want to order this. So I think that like, that's when they kind of start to like, that's when their brains start churning is when they have like sort of not like the final, final product, but at least an idea of what the final product is going to look like and feel like. You know, it's interesting. I just was, I had a little light go on, maybe a candle, <laughs> a brief candle, uh, a light. In a little flicker. <laughs> yeah. When people are using the expression, you know, oh, well, that just happened to arrive at the right time. It was, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. But it's not like a one-to-one, it's not transitive property. 
it's a right time in every one of these instances. And I was making a little bubble chart of all the places mm. that a book will go here. And there are at least 30 things on here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You'd have to be in the right time at the right place to really quote unquote hit. It's a- honestly bizarre. Like the amount of publishing is like a relatively unregulated industry. And I'm not sure people really know that, but like there's a layer of like gambling and luck in publishing that is really like even as a professional in the industry it's super unpredictable you never really know like and I think that especially since the pandemic started like TikTok has really taught us that which is like a really weird way to learn life lessons but you know like you never really know like what's going to take off and why and it really is it's like a confluence of factors like somebody sitting in an office somewhere has an idea that like happens to work with like some other idea that somebody is having like in another city on in another part of the world and if those two things just happen to line up sometimes there's that magic you know A number of years ago, my wife and I uh, happened to be in Las Vegas and we, uh, by hook or by crook, wandered into a high roller area. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess we just had the right amount of bow tie and nice dress that we were allowed (laughs) to get in. Um, And someone leaned over to me and they said, like, they noticed, they're like, well, you're not gambling. And I'm like, oh, no, I gamble every day. I'm in publishing. Exactly. Yep. It really is like that. What? How do you encourage the author that is now just along for the ride? Like there must be so often, uh, not just not just you as an agent, but the peers of yours who are also agents. There must it must be so hard to receive an author's new work, feel so confident in it, and then this machine has it. Knowing that the work has just started, the book is done. Everybody yeah. thinks that's it. The finish line is, you know, the end. But no, oh, now no. All the real work starts. Honestly, like it's I, I laugh every time someone sends me because you know how everybody like titles their documents or their drafts or final. whatever, like yeah. final. Yeah. And also, every author I think like gets a thrill of delight when they get to write the end at the end of a draft. Like, yeah. and every time I'm editing a book and it's it has final in the document name and the end at the end, I'm like, Oh friend, <laughs> like, <laughs> the road, it's so long, <laughs> you know, and people still want to do it because it feels good. But I think deep down, like anybody who is in this industry knows that like, that's really like, you know, knocking out that first draft. That's like the first step in like a very long journey. It could be the end question mark. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like Gandalf has just knocked on your door at that point, you know? <laughs> um, uh, Justin was asking before we started, we were sort of like brainstorming what are some of the want to talk about. And uh, so he was saying like, there must be a favorite part for you in this process. And actually it's more Byzantine than perhaps anyone listening was aware at first so and and now that we've laid out that map maybe it's easier to talk about what are your favorite parts oh my god there's so many favorite parts for me I am like I feel like I'm one of those like horrible capitalists now because when people ask me if I like my work I'm like I love my work and it's not even a lie but it's just like it's it feels kind of dirty either way because I always have to warn people all the time like my I have to like sort of think of my work as separate from like the capitalist aspect of publishing because they really are like 
like super intertwined, but also like there are real points of delight in the work that I get to do. And it doesn't always have to do with like the success of the project, if that makes sense. So I try to like celebrate the wins, even if, you know, they're not like translating into dollar signs for anybody, because I like, I try not to make that the most important thing, even though it's obviously like an element of what I do. But the, the one thing, the, like the best part that was the most surprising that I didn't expect when I first started agenting was getting cover drafts. Like there's something about working on a book for like months and months and months, because like, even once I'm working with an author, it still feels very insular, you know, like it's just me and my computer and like the author sometimes on the phone or like sometimes by email. And we're just going back and forth, like sometimes over like the silliest things, like you know, how to punctuate the title or like, should we put a chapter break here? Or like, does this illustration go in this spot or like three inches higher? And like, we're just like really going back and forth over these like little details, trying to get everything perfect. And then, you know, we send it out into the world. It's like this weird, vulnerable thing for everybody. And then, I mean, I get like bajillions of rejections every day. So getting an offer on a book is always really exciting, but like, it's more normal for me to wake up in the morning and be like, okay, rejection, 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 like filtering all the things, you know, just because like the math of like the industry, that's how it works out. Let's unpack that moment. Right? <laughs> I've often said- Rejection you know, moment or the offer yeah, moment? Okay. my whole career, Justin and I actually, what we have in common, I think, uh, and, and why we work well together and why we started working together, whatever, <laughs> is that we often send out pitches, ideas, and things to lots of places totally when we were starting out collecting rejections was kind of our jam like <laughs> totally. you know you wake up in the morning you're like okay which one said no today yeah it's <laughs> almost like a game you know what sometimes like I get so much delight over like good rejections too like that's the oh. weirdest part is that but you have to so really close but not quite yeah right? or like just knowing that like somebody who you super admire, like from reading their rejection, you can tell that they like really thought about it and that they've offered you like really genuine feedback on a project. I remember uh, Fiona McRae, who is like, she has just retired. So I can't remember her exact title, but she's like one of the executive directors, if not the executive director um, of like one of my favorite American imprints. And when she read one of my books for the first time and wrote me back this like thoughtful, sweet email with like great feedback. And like, it was clear she had read like all the way to the end. I was just like, like I almost exploded, <laughs> you know, it was so exciting because I, like, even as a new agent, like trying to get the attention of somebody who's that busy is like really difficult, you know? And so to know that they like spent that time with your work is like so exciting. For, and, and I always try and tell the authors who I send those to as well, that like, that's, it's a big deal to have people like that reading your stuff, even if it's, you know, not ultimately the right fit or whatever, but the fact that they actually took the time to go through it because they don't for everybody. So it's, you know, even that can be really, really cool. And I think I should share on the podcast that Emmy, you, you were that for me. You were one of the first agents oh, that I ever reached out to. And you sent back a really nice, <laughs> like heartfelt email about Dragon Nanny and that you liked it, but it wasn't a right fit. And, and you gave me some advice and it, it meant a lot. It was great. Oh gosh. Thank um, you. <laughs> sandwiched between like just generic, almost robotic, like we're passing, you know, Go away. Yeah. Go away. You could tell there was Go another away. person at the end of your email. And so I, I thanks a lot for that. It, it was, it was even, even though it was a rejection, it was a, it was a great rejection to get. Oh, so. I'm glad. Yeah. I wish I honestly, I wish I could do that for every single author that submitted to me because I so rarely, there's this stereotype that like agents get like bajillions of terrible 
queries and that's just I mean it is true that we get some terrible queries but like I mean it's often people right at the beginning of the process who just like have missed the mark they just don't know what they're doing yet you know what I mean and in some ways I kind of want to write back to them too and just be like you just need to research like a little bit more before you do this I like children for breakfast <laughs> never You've been on that great podcast, um, Shit They Don't Tell You About Writing. Yes. <laughs> I've been listening to that a lot. You've had some great episodes on there. And that oh my gosh, they're so really, wonderful. Yeah, really opened my eyes to this whole process and looking at my first queries and, and what I'm doing now after gaining knowledge from that podcast is that's a great resource that I would recommend. It is such a good resource. And Carly and Cece are amazing agents. Like anybody would be super lucky to have feedback from them. I think they're, Cece was one of the reasons I started agenting in the first place. She worked with me at the Rights Factory when I first started. And she is just like such a brilliant author. And her, I think that that has like really impacted her agenting work. She does incredible editorial work and she, her feedback on that podcast is like, if I was querying, that's who, who I would want to hear from. Absolutely. And Carly is like, I mean, I like, we joke that like, she's flawless in the agenting world. I don't know how she accomplishes everything she does in her life. She's like, I, I swear if I didn't know her better, I would think she was like a robot. She's like a great mom, but she also has like amazing insight to offer. Like, and she's closing amazing deals all the time. So I think like anything that she says is is like goes in the bible for me <laughs> the agent after, of bible after i read the prestige and then saw the film i became convinced that everyone i admired probably was two people <laughs> and they were all playing this game of being spoiler alert of being two people yeah right? of being one person two people playing one person absolutely in the query process i think it's also bears uh discussing that if you get a really scathing like feedback which sometimes i've gotten one time or another there will also be something that feels like it must be a lie the all-important <laughs> phrase you know they've ripped your manuscript apart and then it'll say but please submit again no i never say that unless i mean it because like, will. Mean it. <laughs> this is what i'm saying it feels like a lie but in every no. case that i've ever gotten over myself and been like okay they didn't like it F them, I'll never talk to them again. Instead, I'm like, well, they gave me a direct instruction. I think every agent does that precisely once in the beginning of their career to someone who they didn't really genuinely mean it to. And then you never do it again <laughs> because inevitably the author that like you invite to submit to you again, who you weren't really feeling and you're just saying it to be nice, they'll send you like 84 more manuscripts in the next six weeks. So. <laughs> No, I only ever say that if I really mean it to people. And I also like, I try to tell people too, when, you know, the decision I'm making is not because of them. Like sometimes it's just that I don't have like the network of editors that they need to sell their book. Do you know what I mean? And so like, sometimes I'll try and say to them, like, you know, I like, I can try and recommend to you other agents that would be a better fit because it's not always that. I mean, frequently, it's not that I don't like the project that I'm reading. It's just that it's not like the right thing for me. So sometimes like within Westwood, we share queries, but also like there's only eight of us or something like that. So like, we don't have an agent that represents everything. Sometimes I have to refer things out too, so. And anyone playing the bubble game, the the web game of who touches your manuscript, even the, 
sharing queries, right? Oh, we do it all the time. Right. This is another part of that web that lots of people might have seen and had a had an opinion on the work. That's true. And also, like, there's a flip side to that, which is that if you send something to an agency and you are rude to somebody or unprofessional Uh or their work, your work is like really uh like they tell you that there are things to work on and they send you away to like work on those things and then come back chances are good if you submit to another agent at that agency like the next day it's also not going to work <laughs> because right, we do like talk yeah. to each other as yeah. humans <laughs> i told them to work on it again for a couple of weeks before they ping and it shows up as exactly in the inbox right yep. yeah um and you also never know i think you never know who's screening the queries also like at westwood we rotate around depending like who has time and stuff but it's not even it's not just the agents who read the queries like many of my senior colleagues have assistants who also you know like part of their admin work will be to go through our slush pile or to go through our submission inbox and kind of pick out things they think are promising or might be a good fit because like we get a lot of queries that aren't addressed to one person in particular and so um you know, somebody has to decide who's going to read that and consider it. And oftentimes it's just whoever has time. <laughs> so is that day exhausting or in, like in feel like exhilarating because like you're looking at somebody's like dream, right? But like yeah. dream after dream after dream, you and you can imagine the potential, right? Like you've seen yeah. this whole process from start to finish. You can envision where it could go. But is that is that draining after a day of seeing all these potentials? Oh yeah. And I have like the world's biggest emotions. So I find it's like a roller coaster. Like, because also some the worst is when I love something and I know I can't sign it. Like that's it happens not all the time, but like not infrequently either. That like I'll read something. It happened, okay. I can give like a concrete example because it happened recently that someone who I had met through a conference submitted to me their manuscript and they were one of the organizers. And I thought like I was so humbled that they would submit to me because they had also like invited me to participate at their event. So they asked like, would it be okay if I, and I was like, yes, please. Like that would, anyway, I read their book and having participated in their event, I also knew that they were like amazing at marketing, knew the industry really well, like were really nice. Like, you know, I knew all this extra stuff about them that I don't usually know about an author before I consider their query. The book was brilliant like i i listen to a lot of my queries um on audio while i'm like driving and stuff and so obviously not visual ones but yeah like the like novels and things that's like 90 percent of how i screen queries Um, back up that sounds like magic (laughs) i use like a it's called voice dream so it's like a text to voice app and i just load manuscripts in there and i yeah you can pick like different voices from there it's a, it's a like an accessibility app so it's mostly used by people who are visually impaired um and so they have like a massive library of voices you can change like the speed and the tone and the pitch so that like you can hear it best um and yeah you can pick like accents from all over the world some of them are even like monster voices or like children's voices like super hilarious um and so yeah i just like plug them into my car and if I'm like running errands or whatever I find because otherwise sometimes if I sit down and just read for a long time then I do get like two in my head about it right and I want to be able to read it like as though I'm like reading a book like as a reader just for fun to like see is this something like I really like or is it something that you know my like logical brain is kicking in this is funny because Justin and I do this in a kind of a tangential way Mm. when we watch movies in the studio or we're recommending movies to each other 
if we put on a film while we're working, like working on pages, mm-hmm. trying to crush pages, and we're stuck looking at the film, yes, we know it's so good that we yeah. should watch it later and we'll switch. absolutely right. right? But if you <laughs> can kind of do anything you were gonna do and it it's just there, then maybe it wasn't for you. It doesn't speak to us, you know, yeah. not every film or every piece of art is for every person, but. I guess that's one way in which you're filtering like the thing that just reaches into your busy day and shakes you and says, no, pay attention to me. That's it. And also, like, honestly, I just wouldn't, like, I read pretty fast on the page, but like, I just wouldn't have time in my life. Like, I think I get usually, I get like 30 or 40 queries a week in like a normal week. And like, I don't obviously request all of those, but even if I request like two or three, like I, it would be a lot to read two or three books from start to finish yeah, every two week. Two or three you know? a week and 52 weeks is like, yeah. you know, it's 104 books. It's too many books. Ah, <laughs> I'm freaking out for you right now. I'm sorry. If I and read. they're not books that are done, right? Like they're yeah. books that need work. So it's different than just like chilling and reading a book. Like a lot of them, I mean, now and then you get ones that are really polished and perfect, but like, that's not where they're even expected to be at that stage. So yeah. now for, for all the ways in which someone listening to this may have their anxiety triggered about like my precious thing is going through this big machine. I find some solace as you are talking about these processes that it's the last bastion of non-algorithmic selection. Oh yeah. There's left, no algorithm. <laughs> yeah. Left to human media, right? Like, Oh my God, my life would be so much easier if there was an algorithm. <laughs> right. Easier. But would the taste refine in the wrong direction? Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, that's really the tough thing. Like I did a podcast interview recently with Jonathan Ball about my manuscript wish list, which is like a little out of hand. Um, and he, he astutely noticed this as an author himself that like my manuscript wish list is really granular. Um, and part of that is because like it's so difficult to try and get across to people, at least for me, like what kinds of books you want to read, right? Like people can write anything. So trying to like pick out, and especially when like trying to pick out what you might like, but especially when people are writing things that are like, I really like things that are quirky and weird. And so I always sort of fear that like, if I narrow it too much, or if I narrow it in the wrong way, like someone's going to read it and be like, oh, I'm not going to send you that. But that might be like the super cool book that I've like been longing for, you know? So yeah, it's a very, it's a very personal process. It's super, like I get super excited and I also get super heartbroken. Like writing emails back to authors is like one of the most, I think like taxing, like sometimes it's really, really rewarding too, but it's also just, it takes a lot of emotional energy because like I've always, especially once I've requested a full manuscript, like I want to give people an idea of like why I'm saying no or why I'm saying yes or you know often it's why I'm saying no but like here are the good things that I really liked that you need to keep for like next time or for the next agent or whatever there's just a lot of factors to consider and so it's impossible like to convey your entire thought process to someone right it's just yeah there's a lot going on in there (laughs) we haven't spoken to anyone else for thousands of years So we started talking to ourselves. This makes me think of a couple of years before the event. Uh, 
Uh, Connor McCreary, Howard Chaikin, and I were invited to speak at the um, uh, University UCLA to mm. talk about comic making and 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 story structure and some things. Mm. And you know, so you get kind of hot when you're invited in such grand company. You kind of are like, yes, I know a thing or two. Okay, <laughs> yeah. On the yeah. UCLA, I'm so smart. We went out for dinner after. And I was gushing about certain projects that I liked or didn't like from other people. Uh, like this one is so brilliant, Howard. This one, you should check out this. And he, Howard Chaikin made a really distinct point that I've never forgotten. And he said, Gregory, I want you to remember that there's a difference between good and favorite. Oh my gosh, yes. So please recommend me only good books, not your favorites, right? And I, yeah. you get into the habit sometimes of if I like it I want other people to like it so I tell them it's good totally as, as opposed to this is my favorite and why yes. it's my favorite and also like something I often I get asked to do query critiques a lot so like whether it's for events and we do them like live or sometimes like for competitions they'll have sort of like a first pages like get feedback on your first pages or whatever and I really like doing that but I also really struggle every time with like whether people want feedback on whether or not the query is good and the writing sample is good as part of a query or whether I think the book is good and whether like the writing is good so there's like such a massive difference between like reading for quality and like me as a reader in my own life being like do I love this do I not like what do I like and then like my brain as an agent being like like there's like this selling switch that I have to turn on and off right like do I think this can be acquired and sell thousands of copies versus like am I just in love with this are like two really different questions when I think more more new new writers and new new people to comics like they need to to understand like it, you guys are kind of gambling the amount of moving parts that we've talked about on this podcast that go into making a book like taking a book from its final form to actually on the shelf and mm -hmm. i said final form with, with quotation <laughs> final um yeah like final, final draft dot last dot exactly yeah. <laughs> like there's there is so many moving parts and a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of people's time and money involved in this process so like you shouldn't you have to be really serious about what you're doing you have to really you have to really want it you need to be persistent you need to redo the work and perfect it and do it over and over again and i think a lot of people just kind of come at it with like a half-cooked idea and hope that they'll win the lottery you know yeah. hope that they'll get picked up and published by a big publisher and i think it's good that there's all these um limitations and and doorways that you have to you have to be good enough to get through um, to get to the next one. You use, barriers are here for a reason. Yeah, you used a great phrase uh, in discussing your own relationship with this process, points of delight. You have yeah. certain points of delight. Absolutely. I think for, for someone who is writing, the act of writing is a point of delight for them. Mm -hmm. And the I idea so. that they would have a book one day that others could read is a point of delight. And I think that there are lots of strata you can dissuade me from this ridiculous notion if you if you so choose <laughs> but there is so many there's a there's a strata in the publishing community where if you have talent and you have the point of delight of writing and you have that point of delight of having finished a manuscript you can shop around to smaller more boutique publishers 
and have that all important point of delight, if that's all you want, mm -hmm. of my book exists. Maybe you only have one book in you. And the idea mm -hmm. of running this gamut is like a nightmare. There's still places, I think, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think there's oh, no, like for that. Yeah, 100%. And I always tell people like, I hate, I mean, I realize the reality of the situation being an agent is playing a gatekeeping role, but I hate to think of myself that way because it makes it seem like I'm the only way through <laughs> to publishing, you know, like, I think one of the things that's like really great about publishing, like removing sort of like the traditional publishing framework is that there are so many different platforms, you know, like I, you know, I want to see certain books on shelves at Indigo and Barnes and Noble, whatever. That's like the work that I do. But I, I do read queries sometimes that I'm like, this is not going to get picked up. Like from my perspective, at least, like, I don't think this is going to get picked up by anybody, but like, you should self-publish this, or you should bring this to an indie press because like, there is an audience for this. It's just not like the thousands of people who are going to be like buying your book at an airport, you know, like, and that doesn't make it a bad book. It just means that there's like a different platform that might work better for it. And it doesn't even mean that like, especially in certain genres like I don't even know if traditional publishing makes sense like part of the reason I don't represent series romance is because like I really like reading rom-coms and things like that but a lot of the best romance authors in the genre and the readers will tell you this are the ones who are self-publishing their stuff and they churn out like a billion books a year like some of them churn out like four or five titles a year like on you know like the kindle self-publishing app or whatever or wattpad or like any kind of platform and they make like great money because they have a dedicated fan base and their books are like exactly what they want them to be a lot of them work with like one specific developmental editor who's like a freelancer who they just like hire to edit their books with them and like i don't know that like i want to mess with that you know yeah. like that's a great business model if you're like happy doing that like I can, there's nothing I can do as an agent to get you a publishing deal for five books a year. Like that's not going to happen, yeah. you know? So it comes back like, around to that point of delight, right? They yeah. are delighted every time they release a new thing. And let's face it. If you're able to write five books a year and get them out in front of an audience uh, in three years, you're a much better writer than you were three years previous. A hundred percent. Yeah. And also like if better. you have all those peripheral skills to like market it, like, sometimes like there is no one better to market your work than you frankly like an imprint might not know how to handle the work that you're creating but you do so good like keep doing that you know like everybody has their own path I think but there's this there is this idea that like getting with a big five publisher is like the way to be I think there's like a level of prestige to that but it, it also means you have to sort of be like hitting certain benchmarks that like not all authors want to do with their work like not all authors want to write to that to the standards of, you know, like an imprint that's catering to the mass market. Why don't you do what you dream, Bastion? But I can't, I keep my feet on the ground. Call my name. It's like that scene, I know I'm dating myself here, but the ancient <laughs> film, The Never Ending Story. Oh, classic, my heart. <laughs> right? Where they go to the gate, where the two sphinxes are and the brave knight is rising up, riding up to it and he's going to be tested, right? And they're watching him through the little telescope and they're like, oh, that fancy armor isn't going to save you from what's coming. In a way, that's the critical process of publishing, right? All the fancy armor and the way you convince it, you have to arrive with a pure heart, with a good intention. And yeah, if you step back, if you have fear, if you hold back, you will be obliterated. Yeah, but it can be. 
nobody's forcing you through that gate. You don't have to go there. I think we've all been talking about too, like there's, there's different, there's many different options when it comes to publishing. There is no one way to do it. Yeah. And I often find myself recommending to first time authors to self-publish that first book because the skills they're going to learn self-publishing book, that first book, by the time they're ready to talk to the big five, they will have participated in so many of the, the steps and skills that they, they're going to need to like have a book published by Harper Collins or Scholastic, right? So yeah. I, I really like the, the, the experience of, of self-publishing. I feel a lot more um, like ready to deal with more professional publishers after going through that myself. Yeah, a lot of people really don't understand the process of publishing and definitely self-publishing will teach you that in like a really concrete way. But on top of that, like I think a lot of authors think that, you know, once you once your book is acquired, like that's it. You like finish the book and they like handle the rest. And like that is so not (laughs) what happens, you know. It's so much work. And like my I have a couple of clients who are like marketing wizards, like um, one of my rom-com clients, Kelly Olert, has taught me more about marketing a book than I could have ever learned on my own. She is just a super nerd about it. She's super keen. She does all the research. And like, I think that like, like she is having good success in her career because she has those skills, you know, like she's also a brilliant writer, but like there are lots of brilliant writers and to sell your book really, really well, you can't just rely on your imprint. You also, like in a lot of cases, they're relying on you too. So whatever kind of like your skills are, like they're going to make use of them. (laughs) Why don't you, uh, just for the sake of the dear listener, name that author again and say where they can uh, find them. Oh yeah. Pause and go look. And then they can do some reverse engineering. You know, they can see how this person (laughs) is doing it. Um, Because I think that's of real value um, if you see someone uh, who you admire in the publishing space and you take us, you try to go a layer deeper, like, okay, who is their agent, right? Okay, yeah, who else absolutely. does their agent represent? Oh, what other books have been sold? What are the deals around that? And you can, mm. you can quickly find yourself in a position where you're like, oh, well, that's not the company I'd want to keep. Mm-hmm. for this book or this idea so yeah absolutely yeah. no so kelly is one of my uh one of the authors i signed pretty early on she's in the u.s her name is kelly olert o-h-l-e-r-t and that's like her social media handle too um her debut rom-com is coming out uh in a year so december 6th 2022 and it's called to get to the other side and it's about a rescue chicken and it is the most heartwarming book <laughs> in the entire world i love it <laughs> it's so good and actually like kelly's story oh, is one you, chicken. What is yeah, it? it's in that. the in the beginning of the book there the main character finds a chicken wandering lost in the streets of chicago and the book goes from there <laughs> Um, and it's based on a real chicken whose name is Chick Chick and Kelly occasionally posts pictures of her so you can also see pictures of the chicken who inspired the book Um, the chicken had its own little wheelchair which also makes an appearance in the book later down the road so it's you know there's a lot going a lot of good going on in that book but she yeah she I love her story because we actually took I signed her for a totally different book um we took it out on submission and both of us were like relatively confident but we did a small submission because we were like to me at least it felt like there was something that wasn't quite perfect about it yet and I couldn't put my finger on it Kelly had worked really hard so I was like let's take it out and get some feedback and see if other people feel this way too 
And so we did, and we got some good feedback, but rather than keeping on going with that submission, Kelly was like, no, 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 we're going to do a different project. And I was like, okay, pitch me something. And she ended up pitching me this book. And I was like, this is the one Kelly, like, it's going to be, this is going to be the one. And sure enough, like it, it wasn't her first project that got acquired. It was the second one. Um, and now she's like, we're, you know, working toward all kinds of other things, but we're, she's super excited to have her debut novel being published in a year so yeah and what a, the great part about that story too is you couldn't get to the second book if you didn't write the oh, first yes, book, which yes, means you need not. to just get your butt into the chair and get some writing done and that doesn't mean write all day that doesn't mean quit your day job that means no she has a day job and two children she's yeah. a superhero she's one of those people like I mean I think lots of authors are those people but like she writes you know like in the evenings after her kids go to bed she writes like on her lunch break she like listens to audiobooks while she's doing the laundry you know she's like really she just loves she really has like a passion for the stuff that she's writing and I think it brings her a lot of joy to like be able to fit that into her life the way that she does um, as you made her, that checklist of how she manages her day I was like yep Yep. Yep. No, exactly. yep. No, you were, yep. Yep. Listening to queries in the car. <laughs> you know, oh, we all do it. <laughs> yeah. Emmy, yeah. I know you have a huge pile of queries to get through. I, do. I know you have a <laughs> lot going on uh, all the time. So thank you so much for carving out this little piece of time to demystify. Oh, gosh, no, it's so fun. All the hands that went into uh, getting a book. This has been super pulp science. <laughs> Can I just say we've like very barely scratched barely, the surface? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Hikoncheries. I don't know if that's how you're pronouncing it. It's a Greek word that means the hundred hands, right? The hundred mm. hander monster. That is published oh, man. for sure. Yes. This has been super pulp science where we talk about how genre gets made. This is Gregory Kamichik encouraging you to write books, make comics. Thank you so much, Emmy. Anytime. Mm.